Hi everybody, thanks for downloading the podcast. What you're about to listen to was recorded a while back, so there will be no social distancing going on. It's a callback to a bygone age. Um, And also there are some intermittent sound issues because um, you're about to hear something that was recorded live and it was recorded in slightly rushed circumstances, so the microphone was sort of placed in the audience, so you might hear some weird, unnecessary loud coughing and some unclear bits of audio. Please bear with it and um, enjoy what follows. Well, hello everybody and welcome to this special bonus Bonus. edition. Of we, the Fantasy Animation Podcast. Didn't, you didn't think it was going to pop up on your feed then, didn't you? We didn't. We, we don't often do things like this. This is <laughs> this is impromptu. This is un, I mean, it's impromptu in the sense that we've done this. We recorded it a while ago and have edited it. But the yeah. point is, is that for us yeah. and for you as listeners, this, this is, is an impromptu bonus, supporting, supplementary, yeah. additional. DVD extra. Yeah, on the, um, for free. Just yeah. a free app for you. Um, what happened in this episode? This is something um, that we don't... Slightly different for us. We're taking fantasy animation on the road. Well, Where did we go? So basically what happened is that um, uh, flying solo, um, Chris unfortunately wasn't able to make the event, um, I held a, an interview and Q&A with um, the illustrator, uh, horror artist and, and sort of visionary, um, I don't know, icon of the, of the 1980s, Graham Humphreys, who you might perhaps know best for designing the Evil Dead poster, as well as a lot of the sort of later Nightmare on Elm Street installments. He's very much known for that sort of kind of uh, graphic, um, painterly quality in that, you know, that sort of VHS 1980s horror style. He is one of the key pioneers behind that, um, and and is is, is is as important to the history of that culture as as many of the film writers and directors are. So you could say he's a perfect fantasy dash animation he, he is a horror illustrator, which I think works with many of our keywords okay. and right. demographics. So uh, we had a great chat down at the Portsmouth Book Fest. Um, literary festival where he was um, talking about his new book um, and reflecting on his career um, and we thought seeing as I was doing it um, it would be silly not to record it because we don't value things in life that we do unless there's someone recording it with a microphone it would seem yes um, but um, we thought we'd capture it um, and share it with you guys so what you're about to hear is my um, interview Q&A uh, with with Graham and um, I hope you enjoy um, listening to it um, if you like this podcast you can of course subscribe um, to um, us on the various platforms, uh, Podbeam, Stitcher, whatever it is you're downloading it from, please subscribe. It really helps boost our rankings and get us more visible on the profile. So yeah, so give us uh, a like, a uh, star rating, or a retweet. You can visit the website. You that can... would be on Twitter. You could do that. Yes, Fananim Research. F A N A N I M Research. You can also visit the website uh, and kind of go back through our archive of previous podcast episodes to f- try and figure out exactly why this is a bonus and slightly different episode than normal go and seek out the normal um, and yeah and we'd love to we'd love to hear from you if you've got any responses thoughts um, views on the kinds of things that we discuss um, yeah get in touch via the website or social media so sit back enjoy the interview if you d- if this is not your thing if you want to just go back to the normal format don't worry that's coming in its usual slot this is a still a little bonus a little, little, a little, uh, little snifter a little snifter a little season s- a season a season of Graham this is the parmesan this is the would you like any cracked black pepper sir yes I would sure so um, enjoy I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise he did the match he did the monster match the monster match it was a graveyard smash he did the match it caught on in a flash. Right, okay, so thanks very much everybody for coming. Um, I'm sure uh, the man I'm about to introduce needs no introduction to everyone sitting here because um, 
Graham's word speaks for itself, but I will do the introduction because otherwise my job's um, useless and then there was no point setting up that microphone, so uh, we all waited for nothing. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, welcome to this um, BookFest event and thanks for supporting um, this local event. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Alex Sargent. I am a lecturer in Film and Media Studies just across the road in the Eldon Building, which I can tell you for certain is about 512 steps from here because I carried Graham's books that you can see there um, from it this afternoon. Heavy. <laughs> um, very heavy and stacked full of, of, of his sort of career achievements. Um, and this is a very informal uh, chat with Graham about um, his life, his career, um, his work um, as part of Baltimore's Book Fest, but also as part of uh, the work I do uh, for Fantasy Animation, a website dedicated to the discussion of all things uh, fantastical and all things um, drawn, sculpted, created, merged, meshed, all kinds of sort of imagery. So if you are interested in the kind of conversations we are going to have um, today, please do check out the website um, and you can download the podcast, which you'll be starring in if the audio quality after we set all that up is sufficient. Um, but with no further ado, let me introduce um, Graham. Um, Graham is a prolific horror um, artist um, and has been for the last of uh, in a decade, I doubt it, but I won't, um, Graham, for the sake of... 40-odd years, yeah, 40 years. Um, and he's going to um, talk us through some of his career and talk about his new book, Hung, Drawn and Executed, which I had the pleasure of reading um, in preparation for this. Um, and um, we'll make sure there's plenty of time for Q&A at the end, so really we'll sort of riff for a bit and then by all means ask any, Graham any questions and we'll have some time to sort of hold court um, and um, show you his wonderful items, um, which is brought yeah, be, be, the, be the courtroom gesture. Um, so I guess um, the first question, Graham, um, from me at least, is uh, so why did you decide to write or, or to construct a sort of um, retrospective on your career um, now? What were the factors that sort of influenced you to making this book? And, um, and what do you think it says about your sort of the stage of your, your career you're at and its, and its legacy? Uh, well, first of all, um, it wasn't something I chose to do. Uh, I was approached by the uh, publisher. Um, we'd met a few times before different events. Uh, um, <laughs> there's a regular event in London called the Satanic Flea Market, which is fantastic thing. If anybody's been to any of the Satanic Flea Markets, but everything's satanic. <laughs> uh, no fleas, mostly. But uh, uh, it's you know, basically just a lot of uh, a lot of gothic stuff, and um, we get authors selling things. Um, and this publisher has a, a regular store there, so he's, uh, he's got two quite successful um, publications, Sex and Horror, which are uh, the work of two Italian artists, which are, funny enough, pictures of sex and horror. Uh, but I mean, both did very well. Good new title, yeah. um. <laughs> But uh, he'd always said, um, you know, if you're ready to do a book at any point, I'd be interested in publishing it for you. And um, I don't know, well, I know at least one of you has, um, Spent a lot of money on a previous book, which um, came about through uh, an appearance on Four Rooms on TV, and um, that resulted in a, a, a run of 500 copies of a quite expensive book, 150 quid. Uh, had no control over that at all, also, or the um, edition and such. So I was expecting to do something like this, to be honest, but uh, that was four years ago, four and a half years ago, and uh, within that time, I, I, I produced a lot more work. And actually, it's, you know, I think it's some of my better work as well. And it, uh, when, when this publisher said, do you fancy doing a book? I said, well, yeah, perfect, because I think I've got enough work now to, to, 
do another book, and will be better, a better quality book with um, more information and um, certainly more experience on my part as well. Plus, um, I knew if I could get some interesting contributors also. I mean, I, yeah, I always know that I have to write some stuff myself. Um, I'm not a writer, but um, yeah, I can string sentences together and have a couple of editors look at it and you know, correct things. But um, I was lucky to get uh, data Stoker, the great brand of you, Bram Stoker, to write some words for me. Uh, also, Victoria Price, the uh, daughter of Vincent Price, um, Sarah Karloff, daughter of Boris Karloff, uh, Jeffrey Coombs, who most people remember as the animator, and uh, Larry Fessenden, who's a prolific uh, producer, director, and actor himself, though, and um, uh, spends a lot of time nurturing horror talent in, in the US. And, um, He's uh, actually been kind to mine as well, though. So all these uh, amazing people are very happy to contribute, which to me um, helps kind of bridge different aspects of my career, uh, which is um, quite often doing new artworks for older films. So I'm um, covering the sort of uh, the literature side of things, I guess, of David Stoker, all the inspiration for all the great horror stuff that um, inspired Universal to make their monster movies. Uh, of course, um, Boris Karloff being one of the most famous, and um, go through into the 60s with uh, the Roger Corman Edwin Post cycles. Again, going back to the literary context, because um, Vincent Price was the great kind of, uh, uh, sort of camp auteur of uh, all those fantastic Roger Corman films. And um, Jeffrey Coombs obviously represents the 1980s in many ways. Barry Fessenden was uh, also working in 1980 through the 1990s as well, especially producing a lot of films. And uh, so just getting these people together really kind of helped me contextualise my own career in, in terms of my inspirations and the work I do. So do you feel you've learned anything about your sort of career by, by having to go through this process? Whether sort of, you know... Well, yeah, uh, really it makes me dig back into my childhood in many ways, all the things that inspired me then. And also, yeah, it reminded me a lot of... Yeah, yeah, quite casual, random things that happen in life though, which um, suddenly take you to a certain point. So, um, you know, as a, as a kid, um, I had no idea I'd actually forge a career doing exactly what I dreamt about doing, but um, I'm one of the few lucky people to be able to do that though. So, that uh, leads me on to sort of the, the sort of retrospective here. And the book, um, I was struck uh, by looking at the, the amazing artwork and and how it sort of told the story of your, your career up until this point. Um, and um, you talk a little bit about sort of your early influences. So you grew up in Bristol uh, in the 1960s, um, and you talk about a sort of very eclectic series of influences that you think led you to sort of be um, creating these images that we know you so well for. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. What, um, what were some of your early influences that you think sort of set you on the path towards the macabre? Well, most definitely, um very early memories I have uh, watching TV, the uh, Doctor Who, uh, 1963, and I'd three years old, so probably very little recollection, but I do remember uh, the first time I saw the Daleks on TV and um, you know the effect that had on me, and um, yeah, suddenly seeing what I can refer to as kids' TV actually being quite frightening, and um, uh, a few years later I, I remember seeing the monsters Probably not knowing at the time that was just basically that kind of uh, uh, 
I kind of rip off the Adams family, but for some reason monsters appeared on TV before the Adams family. Uh, Lost in Space, I remember very well. Um, and then probably basically with Star Trek, some of those early episodes were quite horrific in their content. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I was quite a frightened child. <laughs> um, but either you know, way I dealt with it was to um, embrace the sort of uh, unpleasantness and um, just turn it into drawings. And um, it's you know, kind of exercise it in your subconscious, if you like. It's interesting because I'm, I'm going to ask you about your, your relationship with horror a bit later on. But um, it's interesting that the, the most of the references you were you you name taking the book and you just named it now are, are sort of horrific moments in what we might otherwise call um, non-horrific texts, right? So sci-fi, uh, fantasy, or just like general sort of benign comics, yeah, you reference. Um, and yet these are um, the things that stick with you. Would you class yourself as sort of always, like, you know, I think people would identify very strongly with a particular genre of horror, but that's certainly not the impression I'm getting as an early age, at least, that it's, it's, you're drawn to the horrific, but not necessarily horror, um, if that makes sense. No, I think it was uh, stuff that frightened me, but um, uh, I think at the point where I was at school um, and started seriously reading, then I, I did go in to investigate where the origins of these images came from, though, which meant you know, reading at a very young age, things like you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, Dracula, you know, struggled with, but you know, things like either Hunter at Notre Dame, so I think, you know, as a kid, that's a bit of a struggle to get through. Sure. But um, all these books, so I didn't you know, I gleaned bits and pieces, but then, you know, Ed Brown Poe, HB Lovecraft, much easier to read, although there's still, you know, still some verbosity within that. But um, uh, also, I have to stress that the other uh, aspect was the pop culture aspect as well, because a lot of that TV stuff uh, I mentioned had, had its, you know, that they had um, merchandising, so you had a lot of toys and you know, Daleks and such like. But also music as well. Um, I remember uh, a friend of mine, um, her father had this incredible record collection, and uh, we used to play his singles um, when he was out. But he had, you know, for this man, he, he was, um, he was a, 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 somebody who'd come to Britain, um, in the Second World War, he was Jewish and um, uh, obviously fleeing the sort of uh, persecution. Uh, and yet, had this incredibly uh, eclectic kind of collection of uh, books and records. I mean, amongst this collection, things like Screaming Jay Hawkins, Screaming Lord Sludge, uh, Bobby Boris Pickett, I mean, all these kind of silly things, you know, like Monster Mash and uh, Vampire Mary, I think was one of them. Dracula's Dracula was the Screaming Lord Sludge. But we loved all, all these kind of odd, weird things, which seemed to cross-reference with all the strange universal horror films as well. So, as a sort of, um, a sort of pop culture uh, kind of miasma, if you like, <coughs> that's what I was drawn to, which is all the different influences coming in. And, um, you know, they all seem quite colourful. And I remember, um, you know, we, we used to play this record, uh, Dragon's Daughter. It's a terrible record. But, um, Screaming Lord Sludge was quite a controversial character at the time. Of course, he, he later in life went on to form the Monster Raven Looney Party. Uh, sadly, no longer with us. But um, at the time, he was quite a controversial figure, uh, often appearing you know, on stage with uh, um, naked ladies. And, uh, I actually did see him once before, and, and he was terrible. Uh, he he uh, supported one of my favorite bands, the, the Queen. And um, I remember um, he was brought on stage in a coffin, uh, his coffin bearers. And, before the first song from inside the coffin, we all think it's fantastic. 
then Clofford opened the second song he came out. I thought, oh my god, you know, he was actually booed off after about three songs. So all these sort of, you know, as you said, it's my answer of different images, different cultural things. I've done a little bit of work in my own research on the sort of, you know, the 1960s, 70s context of, of what you're calling pop culture. But I guess at the time, it's not, it's not necessarily, well, it's popular, but it's, it's uh, pop culture in the sense that this is not stuff that your parents necessarily approve of. This isn't the mainstream, no, right? It isn't. Yes. So was, I was interested in, in, in as you <coughs> about that, Did you, were you conscious that what you were doing had a certain cult, rebellious... Yeah, I think the moment when uh, my dad uh, said, um, maybe you sit down and said, we need to talk to your son. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, obviously it's, um, I think, you know, you kind of, you realise something's taboo, suddenly you think, goodness, it's obviously quite interesting. Yeah. The narrative word, then it's really interesting. Yeah. So did you like that, the, the taboo nature of oh, yeah, these things? I mean, yeah, well, I, I, you know, it's interesting because the you know, stuff that worries people, which actually is harmless, you think, well, why are you worried about it? Right? Yeah. It's not hurting you, it's not hurting anybody. But there's something there which, um, you know, the alarm bells were going off, but, you know, I'm not a mass murderer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating sort of um, an era, and I think we can talk more about it when we get to the 80s. But, um, to stay where we are, what, so what age did you start to realise that you wanted to channel this enthusiasm? You said you drew from an early age, yeah, or did crystallise into an ambition that you actually, you were, there was an artistic outlook here in, in these images and ideas? Yeah, well, like most kids at the time, I, uh, at some age you kind of draw dinosaurs, like, I drew lots of dinosaurs as a kid, and um, lots of volcanoes, and Daleks, and skeletons, so that's just the only thing I ever drew. But, um, I think by the time I got to uh, secondary school and um, realised that uh, yeah, there was a, something I could work with and the teachers obviously felt there was some sort of talent they could uh, uh, nurture. Uh, and I was lucky to have some quite good teachers at school. What um, sort of stuff are you drawing for them? Well, I, 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 I had this fascination with um, old sailing ships for some reason. Uh, the Cutty song in particular was, um, I think it must have come out of music lessons. Uh, again, it's that, that weird thing, music and horror. Uh, I was introduced to a piece of music called uh, Dance on the Cob. Um, so I saw Dance on the Cob and um, the sort of apprentice. And you can realise actually, all well, this kind of weird classical stuff also has all this weird horror content as well. So that kind of really drew me in to the sort of classical side of stuff as well. Um, you know, so it, it kind of seems to be coming in all different directions in a way. So I, I, I was feeling a Cool, if you like them. Uh, so I think the sailing ship thing I know came from uh, a particular piece of music, the Tamashanto Overture, which um, our lecturer at school explained uh, um, came from uh, Bobby Burns, Bobby Burns story about which witches, which is Sabbath, and um, uh, somebody captured Tamashanto. He's uh, going back drunk from a pub horseback. Uh, comes across uh, which is Sabbath, and he's spotted, and they chase him, and uh, which is can cross water. He he jumps over the water on the horse, but the the, the youngest which of all grabs the horse's tail and pulls it off, and the Cutty Sark Greenwich uh, is actually named after this witch who's actually called Nanny, which is not very scary, but Cutty Sark means short shirt, and that's what she was wearing. It, 
within the context of the poem. And so the, the figurehead on the front of the boat is this witch, young witch. And I've just got a hand outstretched and in hand, they always used to put horse's tail. So that's this kind of weird sailing ship kind of interest. Um, by some sort of uh, meandering lean. <laughs> So is this, uh, this is before you went to the Salisbury College of Arts to study properly, or these are earlier influences? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so tell me about that experience then, what, what inspires that? Sounds like parents uh, uh, were made cool? No, the, uh, the, the moment where was, uh, we needed to talk some yeah. was um, uh, Hammer Films uh, in their very latter days, uh, 1972 actually. They released a record, Hammer Horror, and it was uh, some of the soundtrack themes, plus a spoken piece by Christopher Lee and his Dracula character. But the cover was a picture from Dracula 8072 of Christopher Lee and Carol, Caroline Monroe, and a neck covered in blood. And um, I think they just felt it was a bit too kind of you know, transgressive for a, a sort of twelve-year-old yeah, kid. To, you know, Buying his pocket money, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, so talk to me through the when you went to art college. What, um, what, what? How did your art develop there? What were there any key influences? Was it a positive experience? Do you think? Oh yeah, completely. Um, that really changed everything I did totally, and certainly culturally as well. Uh, but, but I think the, the the important thing was all the basic drawing skills were there and, and taught. Um, you know, life drawing, perspective, all these basic things which you know help anybody. Uh, but, uh, but you know, culturally, um, uh, I think I was drawn to all the very disaster movies that came out at the time: *Inferno*, uh, *Poseidon Adventure*, *Hindenburg*, because they all had great posters of lots of you know people running away from horrible things, and uh, they were fascinating for me. But of course, um, 1976 um, is when sort of punk rock first happened as well, and. Uh, yeah, there, there was a little change going on, it's a rippling through uh, the college and suddenly some people were dressing very strangely and I didn't quite understand what was going on. Um, uh, I was quite naive at the time, but, um, but actually over a period of a year, uh, it, it changed completely, um, just everything changed. And uh, suddenly I was drawn to this kind of type of music and um, at the same time I think you know, there were a few horror films coming out at the time and these horror film posters were going up in the studio. Um, so these kind of punk rockers were buying horror film posters as well. And uh, you know, it, to me, that, that kind of really cemented the, the, the music horror um, kind of combination. Yeah, okay. So, and so what, you talk about the influence of punk rock. I feel like a whole, oh, the gate's back. Um, you talk about the influence of punk rock. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not, no, okay. I'll hold it to, to at least perform the, uh, the role. Um, you draw a little punk rock on your arts. Could you say, uh, is there a concrete example of how your art changed? Did you? Um... Yeah. Um, I, I think when I first went to art college, a lot of people were fascinated by airbrush work, which is a very slick kind of science fiction. Kind of, uh, everything's very smooth. People wanted to <coughs> illusion of metal and chrome, make things shiny and ethereal. And um, to me. The music I was liking at the time just didn't seem to have that at all. In the context, it was something you know, as fast and as hard and as loud and aggressive. And so I looked for ways of working which reflected the feel of the music. And that's how my technique began to develop. So I kind of ignored 
any you know, pretentious slickness at all. I didn't want things to look smooth and nice. I wanted them to look really horrible and kind of um, unpleasant. But also, colourful as well. I mean, I think, for me, punk rock was always very colourful. Um, a lot of people thought it was very monochrome, but I always thought it was yeah, almost like a carnival in a way, a really loud carnival. And that's what I really wanted to evoke with the work. And after us, School, you, oh, as far as I'm aware, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you, your first sort of pay gig was working for Palace Pictures, is that right? Or was there um, well, there was some other, there was some other things as well, but um, yeah, really, that's that's the first uh, um, uh, career defining piece, I guess, though, that was the evil dead. I, mean, I had done work before, I was, I was doing educational stuff, um, cartoons for books, um, a couple of book covers, I mean, just bits and pieces really, but that was the first kind of nitty job, if you like. So how did that uh, come about? Um, like most things, uh, coincidence, you know, right place at the right time. Uh, I had some friends who'd moved up to Mark College and were working for a, uh, sort of quite a small design agency and um, uh, I, I would go there and sort of hang out because I had nothing else to do, basically. I was looking for work at the time. And um, the receptionist said that um, uh, she knew a, a, a new re uh, new film company who just started up and thought that perhaps you know, I might go to see them because they might be interested in commissioning some work. She had no idea, but she mentioned the name Palace Pictures because I think uh, one of her friends was working for them at the time. Uh, so I went along on her advice and um, that's how the first job happened. I just, literally right place at the right time, they were looking for somebody to do this poster, and I walked in the room. So Palace Pictures were a, a UK-based? Uh, they were, yeah. They were some, company. They grew up to the Scarlet Cinema, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which was being managed by Steve Woolley at the time. And the Scarlet Cinema for those sort of iconic sort of cult uh, cinema. That's what I said, it was, uh, it was in Gooch Street at the time, mm -hmm. a small uh, basement cinema. Not playing art house movies, but um, um, they had some, you know, kind of a, sort of quite transgressive stuff they were showing, like John Waters films sure. and um, things that people wouldn't show elsewhere, basically, sort of midnight movie stuff. And other things in Paris disapproved of, I But they moved premises to what became the Scarlet Cinema at King's Cross, um, and uh, with an injection of money from um, uh, Nick Powell who became one of the other uh, main uh, directors, and his silent business partner, uh, partner was Richard Branson. Uh, they'd been in uh, college and university together. So the money came about to uh, form a distribution company, so they um, distributed videos, and then went into theatrical distribution as well. So The Evil Dead was their second uh, theatrical distribution. So they were quite naive about what they were doing still. Of young young girls, if you like, they, um, feeling their way around the business, um, but wanting to be different and not really caring about being commercial at all, because I think they had the money behind them, not having to worry about it at that time. Um, but yeah, not that I got paid much money, I wasn't paid very little money for the job. But um, uh, but but uh, yeah, it's just one of those weird things that you know they said, "We'll do some sketches." I did. I said, "I'll do." Uh, go away and do it. I did, and um, they said, "Fine." And so it was, uh, you know, two weeks later, it was on the uh, on the underground, plastered everywhere. What was the brief you got? The, what direction? I noticed it. See the film. See what you think. 
and uh, do what you want. Okay. All right. So you have quite a free. So that's. Yeah. So so. You know, having having to teach uh, the creatively minded at the moment, I know the, the the easiest way to stress out my students at least is to give them a brief that's do what you want because they don't understand what they need to do in that case. Do you find that uh, daunting, or did you? Uh, yeah, yeah, most times, um, didn't know what they wanted. Yeah, <laughs> these people didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what? How did you go about sort of? Um, well, what's approaching the, the task? Yeah, I watched the film. I, I sat in a uh, school cinema mm -hmm. on my own, and um, yeah, a bit frightened. Um, it was a full uncut version, and uh, I had no idea what I was going to be watching at all. Uh, so I came out, um, slightly shaking, but um, um, no, but actually excited. And I thought, wow, this is this is quite new. This is really unusual. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And um, I literally just went home, and then they called me and said, "What do you think?" So well, I liked it. Of course, I didn't. Uh, yeah, I'd be very happy to do the job. Uh, so for me, it was all a question of um, just looking through the stills. They said, "Well, I had a." Envelope of about 12 black and white pictures, and um, you know, I could tell the film was a, a, a quite scratchy and low budget. Um, you know, so I didn't, I didn't really have much stuff to work with, so it's all about concept uh, and um, you know, just taking some of the motifs from the film and just throwing them together. So um, you've provided us with two slides that you you have critically told me were influences yeah. for the for the posters that we've uh, we've seen a few times. So I, I'm gonna let, I'll hand this over to you because I'm number wiser. But this is slide number one. So talk us through that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if anybody's heard me talk before about um, horror film posters, um, uh, I like to say they began a long time ago. <laughs> um, because the you know, horror film posters, I mean, you, you know, you, you, it's it, you try to pull people into an experience, um, bring people into the cinema. Uh, and before cinema posters, there were theatre posters, uh, uh, magazines, Bibles with amazing, beautiful pictures in. Uh, but ultimately, <coughs> they went back, um, you go back to stained glass windows and churches where uh, uh, these are basically film posters for the Bible. Um, these amazingly colourful images, sometimes you know, with horrific content, you can see some images there which are slightly horrific. Uh, but this is, I think, where horror film posters began, um, especially where there's depictions of you know, uh, hell as well, and uh, supernatural beings and miracles and stuff that you know, isn't real, <laughs> essentially. Um, and I think that's well, things I was always fascinated by staying class anyway, and when it came to working with the Evil Dead poster, uh, to me there seemed to be a lot of window motifs in it. There was people screaming out of windows, smashing through windows, rushing through windows. Special, uh, you know, especially some of the camera work seemed to be zooming through windows quite a lot. So the window, to me, became the main framework for the poster, and. Um, and in a way, what I was doing was actually recreating a stained glass window. Uh, so that, that was my way of um, acknowledging the origin of the horror film poster. So you walked it's out. A, it's a theory. You know? so, you walked, so you walked out of the Evil Dead, and you thought, "Blimey, that's a cracker! I know stained glass windows is the way to go with this." That's a church of horror. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Um, and and how did that influence? Can you just go back to the the previous slide, possible? How did that influence the design of either the first or the second? The first, the first one. one. We go back again. Is that right? Yeah. We can see it. It's a window. It's a window, and the um, it's it's been broken up into sections. 
and literally it's a stained glass window. Does it influence the colour? It strikes me. It, 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 yeah, yeah, the colour. Yeah, now you say yeah, it, yeah. the colour looks. Yeah. Stained glass. No, I'm not thinking about the the, the uh, look of light coming through scratched old glass, uh, dirty old glass. In fact, that's why it's really rough and textured. Okay, interesting. Um, and then if we go to the second image, jumping around here a little bit, sorry. Um, if, you, if you just go, um, so that's the more, this is number two. Yeah, no, this one's a bit odd. Um, <laughs> because, uh, I presume you all know who Joan Crawford is. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, she, well, my knowledge of Joan Crawford at the time, in the early 80s, was that she had um, done a series of terrible horror films like Trog and uh, Berserk and such like, and, um, and I think at the time a film just came out, Mommy Dearest, which was um, a kind of fictionalised, grotesque kind of caricature of um, well, the impression that her daughter had of her upbringing. And um, so she had this, for me, there was this kind of horror connotation. And I was always fascinated by these kind of bizarre eyebrows and this weird look she had. And um, so what happened was that I, whilst I was looking for work, um, I would spend my time. Uh, just creating images, painting images to, to fill up a portfolio so I could show people the sort of thing I did, the sort of technique I was using, and everything else. And one of the two pieces I did, um, I did two pieces which were Joe Crawford actually, as a sort of the main character, if you like, a sort of fake film poster. So one of them was a science fiction themed one, uh, which I based on a B 52 song, Planet Claire. So it had uh, Joe Crawford in some sort of pink space suit and a big yeah, bubble. Helmet on in a planet with a rocket flying around it. And the other piece I did was called um, Vamp. So it's literally Joe Crawford's a vampire with some bats tangled in her hair with a, a stained glass window behind her. Uh, I don't have that painting anymore, sadly, because I'm a happy show to you otherwise. So, but that was the piece that um, highest pictures saw and said that's the evil dead. And uh, so I owe my career to Joe Crawford. <laughs> Thank you, Bonnie Dearest. So that's what that one that's what they approached you originally, was it? Or yeah, I, I mean they just saw the painting yeah. technique and not looking at Joan per se, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's what um convinced them I could do the job. So again, going back to sort of what you were saying about your early childhood, there's there's this really eclectic set of influences that are inspiring find your artwork here. Um, but how do you, you know, when do you know you are being, are these conscious things that you're drawing from when, you're, when you um, create? Uh, sometimes they are, but um, often not there. So were you so, conscious of the, the Joan Crawford, you know, church mashup that you were there um, initiating? Well, it, it makes sense to me now, yeah. when I look back, because people do say, what influenced you? Why, why did you approach it in this particular way? And um, it's then you kind of really begin to, uh, Kind of study what it is actually, what's going on in your head at the time, and um, you know the things that interested you, the things you were seeing, uh, you know what you were doing. Um, so actually, you, you go back and you actually pick apart this part of your life, and uh, that's what you see suddenly. So you know you're not aware of it always. And, and um, so the film comes out, um, and uh, the reception is. Uh, Mixed, should we say, in the sense. I mean, you know, I'm sure everyone in this room loves it, but obviously at the time it was a massive sort of um, controversial movie. Um, what's, what, what, what happened, you know, talk to us about your experience of sort of you designed this poster 
Um, did you realize it was going to create this sort of, uh, well, I'm sure you didn't realize it was going to create this sort of cultural um, phenomenon that it did, but uh, talk us through the sort of being in the eye of the storm. Well, it kind of predates the Villianasty Act. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what made it um, very different uh, <coughs> at the time was the fact that it was coming out on VHS simultaneously, which is not a, a tried and tested thing at all. Usually you have a two year old bank or a seven year old bank. Um, yeah, this is the way things were released, and VHS came, it was always held back so that, to maximise the cinema um, audience. <coughs> well, I think what they thought was that um, it was a B-movie, horror film, uh, sort of thing that you know, you'd want to, like, on late at night with mates and uh, you know, get drunk and stuff. Um, and I think they thought by releasing the cinema, they would have this profile and that would help promote the VHS. So really, the cinema release was really about promoting the VHS release. Um, but because it meant that people didn't have to wait two years down the line, so people would go to the cinema and think, I like that, I'll buy it on VHS as well. So uh, it kind of, I think it snowballed from that. Yeah, and it was the sort of, you say, it was the prototypical sort of um, case study, well, the, the, the thing that caused the video nasty craze, right? So I'd love to hear your perspective of being a horror um, artist working within the industry in an era where sort of horror is being attacked, you know, by so many conservative sort of voices, the White House sort of brigade, um, you know, the, the younger amongst us, this is an area where sort of literally the movie was banned. Um, you know, the, the beloved video nasty list that now means people like me get to look on Wikipedia and go, right, well, that's my evening entertainment, right, isn't it? There's the, there's the films you've got to see, right? But, um, but I think if we look back from where we are right now, back to the 1980s, it's almost like in the 1980s, looking back at the Hayes Code, mm -hmm. uh, which was basically about censorship in, in cinema, mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of really what was going on, it's uh, censorship. Um, and I think there were a couple of high-profile cases, uh, you know, I think it was a Jane Bolger case, I think, in particular, uh, kids who killed this other little kid apparently watched Child's Play, and that was one of the first uh, uh, films that um, the, the Tampoy Press pounced upon, and they kind of made that connection. And I think just by the mere title Child's Play, they kind of thought, obviously, this is it's putting children in, and children becoming killers, and, um, it all got a bit sort of mad, but um, there were other issues as well. And these are all covered in, um, there's a, a fantastic documentary uh, called Video Analysis, which I'm sure some of you would have seen, mm -hmm. um, Mar Morris and Jake West put out, Nicholas uh, Films, which examines all of this, though. So you know, that's where you need to look, really. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's quite a complex uh, story. But uh, for, for my own, yeah. for myself, though, it didn't really affect what I was mm -hmm. doing. Um, very occasionally, I would do. VHS cover, for instance, and they would just say, can you just tone down this aspect? But the thing is, I was already aware of what was acceptable and what wasn't. So, mostly I always work with images that I knew would go to print without problem. Because obviously, I don't want to waste the client's time, they want to waste my time either. Though. So, you can have an awareness of what's appropriate what is was there, a, I, I, this is from my knowledge, was there a list of things that are appropriate? Compared to the Hays Code, that literally had a list, don't put this in, you should put that in. Or was it more sort of, kind of feeling your way through it, kind of process? Yeah, I mean, there have been some censorship at the, at the cinema, uh, uh, I think probably in the uh, 1970s, there were some issues that um, people had, especially with colour. Uh, Virginia film was being made in colour suddenly, and there was uh, this whole thing about 
blood on breasts, which was almost forbidden. And um, so, so that had some sort of a, 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 a kind of early, I guess, influence on the whole bidding analysis thing to an extent as well. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that um, everybody looks back now and thinks, well, what the hell was that all about? It was just seems, you know, quite hysterical. But there were other things in play, though, and yeah, there was the terrible involvement of Thatcher's government and there were other things going on which really played into that, and it was about sort of appeasing certain things. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I'm, I'm just amazed that, I don't know, the artwork never got sort of, you, were, you could have literally been the poster child for, for this movement, right? Yeah, the images you're creating, um, by being effective in what they're doing, are probably helping to stoke both, you know, the, the, the paradox of the video analysis is I'm sure the distributors are partly in mind it, because it kind of, you know, in a way, in a way it's sold to the core audience quite well, well, right? Um, I mean, the stuff coming out of Italy was uh, yeah. far more, um, you know, contentious, really. Uh, I think what I was doing was quite tame in comparison. So let's talk about, so you, you, you did a few more with um, Palace, and uh, another iconic um, image on here from the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, franchise. Um, tell us the rest of the story of, of, of how that progressed, and how many years did you end up working for them, and, and are there any posters that you particular well, Probably until they um, finally closed their doors, yeah. I think. Yeah, what was that? Administration. It was like 1990-something, I don't know. Yeah. Um, they became quite a big company, only stretched themselves, went into film production with mm -hmm. some success, but then some failures as well. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it just happens. Ego and um, money and, you know, the market changes, all these things that happen to companies. It's, it's you know, it's quite, it's a cyclical thing, I've seen over the years. Um, so price came to a natural end. That mantle got taken up by other companies. Um, yeah, Tartan films, for instance, and perhaps later Harrow films to an extent, though, picking up the same sort of type of material. Um, Tartan again overstretched themselves, I think, went to production as well, and that's where they again, made the same mistake as Palace in many ways. So. Um, but uh, yeah, for a little while, Palace were the biggest independent uh, distributor in terms of the type of films they were putting out and the success they were getting. Uh, and um, the other thing they were very good at was marketing. Um, and that's not, you know, my work in the States, more than choosing how to market films. And so if I was part of you know, that mechanism in some ways, they would decide not to use the American poster, but do something specifically for the UK market. So with the Evil Dead, um, they felt that something quite different was needed. And this happened with also not on Elm Street, although the US poster is, is an illustration anyway, though. Yeah. It's quite a beautiful illustration, but they just wanted something quite different, though, and um, um, they couldn't quite identify what. Okay. Uh, but they said, just do what you think, and um, so this is what I thought. Do you want to talk us through what you, what you thought? What I thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did I think? Well, I, I knew it wasn't an evil dead, um, and I knew that the approach had to be, you know, uh, um, there's no stained glass window going on here. Uh, but I, I wanted it to be quite muted, um, a sort of pretty much a single colour poster, almost monochrome. Uh, my influences, again, in the same way you would not recognise Joan Crawford in stained glass in churches, uh, in the Evil Dead, I was influenced by um, some French artists from the turn of the century, 
uh, people like Jules Sherry, um, Offens Mukla, um, some of the art, art Nouveau artists, uh, and um, it's not apparent at all, but um, it, I was looking at their techniques and the way they used images, and uh, and that's what I brought into this. So if, you know, so if we were looking at Jane Crawford in St. Glass Windows in the first poster, we're now looking at um, turn of the century Paris <laughs> and Prague for this one. Well, it's good. It's, it's, it, 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 if, if we're managing to put this out there, then this is where I say in the podcast, students listen up, because um, having interviewed a few artists, I've found that um, the more eclectic the interest, the, usually the better the work. Yeah, there's this perception that you, um, you know, to be a good film poster designer, you need to design, you need to study those film posters. But actually, what you're talking about is a much broader sort of artistic um, field. Well, I think it's important to be um, open to all influences. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you get people who want to do horror film posters, um, DVD covers, Blu-ray covers, and um, they just focus on the one thing, which is like, yeah, here's the horror film, here are the images in the horror film, that's what we want to do. But they're not, they're ignoring everything else is going around it and uh, all the other possibilities that are out there so uh, you know you just have to keep an open mind I mean you know ships for instance so who would have thought but um but you know <coughs> it's all part of the, the bigger picture in a way though and uh you know if I haven't seen the work of George Sherry this post would not be what it is it'd be something completely different but you see what I'm doing I'm not focusing on the film I'm focusing on the things that the film evoked for me though if you like and that, that's really, I think, key to what I do. It feels a bit of a, a sort of lost art in today's, you know, age. Probably since the, you know, we're here, we're talking about nineties onwards. Film posters have become exercises in sort of, I don't know, capturing stills of film, right? And um, what you're talking about is an artistic response um, to the movie. Am I barking up the wrong tree here, or do you feel that way about? No, I don't think it's very simple. We all know that um, desktop computing changed everything. Of course, it did, and uh, it, was, it was inevitable. It was going to happen. And uh, for a little while, it was just imagined that uh, Photoshop work was going to be the cheaper option um, over illustration work because you know, a lot of illustrators were very busy at the time I was, and many others as well. Really. There were a lot of uh, illustration agencies in London at the time, always busy, looking for new illustrators, and there was a lot of work for people, and they all kind of dried up suddenly uh, in the early 1990s, and um, Photoshop just took over completely. And, um, in many ways, it, it provided a, a novel, new look to things. And yeah, people were drawn to novelty, of course. And um, uh, so it changed, changed everything. My, my, my work didn't try out because I was, again, influenced by other things and doing other work as well. Educational books, as I said, magazine um, work. I mean, all the stuff you'll never see in any of these books. You know, sort of, um, it's you know, quite dull mundane stuff, but that's what I have to do to survive there. The, the, the sort of the shift that they're yeah. So I guess that's it. So we're going to talk about your technique a bit, if you, um, if you don't mind. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to defer to you on this. You provided with a few slides that are taken directly from the book that explains your process. And I think for readers who are interested in and how you develop this innovative sort of, you know, the Humphreys look, um, you provide this really kind of great blow-by-blow sort of tape on a particular poster. Do you mind um, sort of, you know, talking us through um, various, um, pro the, the process that went behind developing this and that? Yeah, yeah, I think for me there's no secret about what I do, and um, 
you know, I, I would happily teach if I were not busy. You know, I have taught. Mm. Uh, I did teaching for one year. And, um, I don't get into it, it's not a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> it helped out at the time. I, you know, it's literally, I think after I finished um, <coughs> London Elm Street, um, I was struggling with money. You know, wasn't ever well paid for work. It isn't actually quite. But uh, um, at the time, I did have some debt, and um, I had a chance to do some teaching, and it did help clear that debt and get me back on track. So, yeah, that's just life. Um, but, uh, you know, I enjoy teaching, and what it did do is make me um, <coughs> assess and reassess what it is that you know, I do for a living. <coughs> and um, kind of re-examine how my own processes work and trying to inspire people by the way I was thinking as well, if you like. And so really, to do this load-by-load, um, step-by-step thing in the book, was a way of just getting back to that again. Because I want to show that actually it's not that difficult. Obviously, you know, you have to have some sort of aptitude. But um, it's how I make the decisions. And what I hope with this little section in the book is that actually it shows you why I do certain things and why they're done in certain ways well. Though. So it is a process, initially from the beginning of a job through to the end. And um, how also, although Photoshop worked so hard to kind of crush careers like mine at the time. Actually, it's, it's become a friend, if you like, though, you know. And uh, so, although my work is not digital, it is paint on paper still. There is some Photoshop work within the process, which is all about uh, compiling reference, how you put reference together, um, how instead of, as in the old days, you kind of uh, sketch different layouts and you have to keep repeating the different elements, whereas now you just have the same elements and you just move them around in Photoshop. I mean, all of that's so much easier now. Just, Save so much time. And uh, so the Photoshop part of it is quite important, um, but what it does, it leads me straight to the painting part of it and the, the, what you see over the pages of it is how the paint is applied, uh, why it's applied in the way it is, and what the effect is, and how that's all achieved um, very simply. And, um, you know, I, I want to show that it's actually not, it's not a, a magical, mysterious thing. It is exactly what it is, and you know, there's, there's nothing tied here at all. Anybody can do it, basically, in the debate. Um, well, that's very modest. I hope you don't, because I'm, I don't want to get that word. Yeah, 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 I was going to say that. I don't, 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 do it, I don't do it as well as you. Uh, what, what is the story of this particular um, piece, if you don't mind? Uh, this was, um, this is a book cover. Um, actually, the book still hasn't come out yet. Okay. Uh, it's a, uh, I think it's called the Boris Koloff Companion, and it's a collection of um, ephemera, advertising and posters, everything pertaining to the career of Boris Karloff. And, um, and my brief was to create a cover which had some of the iconic roles he played. And uh, I, I, I was given a list of about 12, 14 different characters. Um, and it's my job just to sit through those and decide which ones were the most visually exciting for the cover. And they're the obvious things, obviously. But, uh, yeah, some stuff, the material wasn't that great to work from, whereas other, uh, other pictures were really crisp and um, you know, the lighting was quite fantastic. So you always kind of concentrate on stuff that's going to be most visually interesting for the viewer. And uh, it's all about just how you compile those and create a hierarchy, if you like, though, uh, with certain images being bigger than others. 
And um, yeah, we all know that Frankenstein is the, the big role that's so important in his career. And um, also playing around with um, the latter career as well. So it's, it's well, I've got the, the earliest picture there, Frankenstein, right next to one of the later Roger Corman roles he did. Though, and for me, it's very important to bring those together um, right away up front in, in, in the image. And then the other roles around, and you know, kind of play around with uh, the way he played around with his own characters and characterisation as well. And um, how long did, is this a, this process? Has this always been? Did, was there a point where you settled on this process? Have you ever settled on one process? Or? It's it's a it's a pretty standard process for me now, and it, it's literally all about um, uh, deadlines and uh, mm. how long things take to do. It's like literally you can get A to B as fast as possible, literally because everything has a budget, and um, if you if you work longer. On something that budget is really paying for, then actually you're then paying them to do the work, and you're not working if you like. So at the end of the day, you have to survive, have to pay bills, and everything else. So I have to be quite brutal about the amount of time I spent on the job. So I did. I know in advance that, you know, for instance, I knew um, uh, this was not going to be a highly paid job, but I knew I could do it within about three days, and um, and as long as I had good reference. And uh, you know, we went over that time, but also I knew that the cover would be um, uh, an important cover for this particular publisher, and I worked with it before, and I worked with them again, and so it's actually quite, uh, you know, it, it was appropriate to, to take on the job and then deliver something, you know, with a certain amount of complexity to it, though, um, and also, you know, in a way, you know, it allowed me to get in touch with Sarah Carlyle, for instance, though. Then wrote the piece for my for the book, and that probably wouldn't happen without this job. So, you know, it, sometimes you have to work with uh, things and um, know that you're going to have some benefits. <coughs> sure. Um, and so you said this took about four days. This stuff. This one, yeah. Is that is that typical? Is that? Um... Yeah, uh, most jobs I always say take between two to four days. Um, yeah, sometimes it might go over, but uh, yeah, quite often I'll be working on one job. Um, uh, and then have to work on some work on another job at the same time, so maybe working on two or three jobs simultaneously. Okay, so the book um, we've talked a lot about the, the, the sort of film person you're most well known for, but um, the book is full of, of loads of different aspects of your career, from as you say book covers to um, uh, events posters to um, I mean I'm, I'll forget the most. So I've, I've, we've got a little selection here. Um, talk talk us through sort of these these examples. So what's where is most of your commissions coming from these days, or is, is there one? Um, well, I'm still doing work with Arrow Films at the moment. Um, we've got three covers I'm doing from at the moment. Uh, doing work with another company, a new company called Fabulous Films, which okay. is fabulous. <laughs> uh, so just started working with them. Um, again, those are Blu-ray covers. Uh, so there is that traditional stuff. Um, I'm doing independent. Uh, Film company posters, and just the, uh, about to start work on a poster for a film for um, Neil Marshall, who did uh, Dog Soldiers, Demon's Day, uh, and The Descent. Uh, so he's got a new film coming out, and uh, I've seen the rough cut of it, and we've gone through the process all the sketches now. So I'll be starting work on that next week as well. So, um, so, um, so there's that aspect, so it's still, still cinema stuff as well, 
Um, these, uh, yeah, very different things. And on top of it was done for, um, that was done for Tartan Films, one of the last jobs I did for Tartan. I spent 10 years doing stuff for them, it was all fairly short stuff. Uh, and the very, the very last thing that I did for them was this. And um, it was the only time they actually said, let's do an illustration this time. And uh, uh, it didn't get used ultimately, though, which is a real shame. Um, uh, but I, I, I loved El Topo, and um, I, I had a chance to meet uh, Dorowski uh, when he came over to the BFI to do a talk and actually introduce the new restoration of the film. And he said that it was his, his favourite poster for his film, and he was really upset that they weren't using it. Uh, so, you know, what ratio actually can you get from that? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but um, I have a couple of private clients who um, are happy to pay me money to do uh, unique posters for them. And uh, Halloween 3 is one of those posters. Um, I've, I've uh, we've about five posters for the same client now. Poltergeist, um, Reverend Wolf of London was done for that same client. Then Arrow, um, took it on for their Blu-ray release. Uh, Halloween was another one. But, um, and he's got a list of about 30 films he wants me to work on. I just try to find the time to do stuff because there's no deadline. Sure. Oh, it's just actually getting around to doing them. Uh, Van Morella, that was commissioned by a university, well, De Montfort University, for their script reading um, in London with uh, Caroline Monroe, who of course was um, slated to play Pamparella, the mm. film that never got made. And uh, Peter Cushing was going to be uh, the lead, lead man, but um, he unfortunately died. So it never happened. <laughs> and then I guess to bring it full circle for, um, I'll, I'll let you guys take over until you've got questions. Um, this is a, another recent uh, piece you've got. So we're, we're back at the, uh, the start of the journey, so to speak. Um, how did this come about? And, um, What's the story yeah, it's, um, over the last few years there have been a number of groups in America, people get together, and they, they found each other through Facebook and such like, and what they'll do, they'll commission an artist to do a poster for one of their favourite films. What they do, they pull their money together, uh, pay for the artist's work, um, pay for separator and screen printer to produce these limited edition screen prints, uh, maximum of 300, anywhere between 100 and 300 copies only, uh, then the screens are destroyed, and that post was never printed again. So they're unique items. Uh, what makes these slightly different is that um, I work in full colour. I don't do you know, kind of, uh, kind of do something which is black and white, then add areas of colour. It's all full colour. So these are quite complex posters to uh, uh, produce a screen printing and you need somebody who really knows what they're doing to separate out different colours. So this was, a, I think, a 14 ink screen print. Which you know, becomes quite expensive to do. So I think there are literally 180 of these made, and that was it. Um, so we did Evil Dead 2 and then Army of Darkness, uh, and I've probably done about, uh, about 10 different projects now, screen print projects, and I've got one I've just finished now, uh, The Monster Squad. It also been kind of 80s, everybody does 80s stuff, it seems like. So. It's, uh, it's, well, well, Stranger Things has probably uh, helped. Uh, Increase the commission numbers. Yes, I've not seen it. Um, uh, yeah, okay. And do, is it fun to revisit sort of these things that you've already? It is, um, yeah. Offered? Because you look at the film again, and uh, with, with sort of, um, 
life experience has gone past and you kind of see things in different ways and you know you, you all of those things I talked about earlier on about how you keep how you, you know it's not enough for you thinking of uh, turn of the century in Paris. Um, so you, you make all these little connections which you didn't make before. Uh, and so with the Evil Dead going back to that film, you know, I saw things in it I didn't see before and felt like there were different ways I'd work with it as well. Although I wanted to keep the same kind of overall rough quality, I don't want to lose that at all. Uh, um, but again, it's, you know, using the real, the reels that you see in the first place to bring those back again, but using them in a different kind of way. Though. Interesting, interesting. I think we'll um, we'll, we'll let you guys um, ask any questions if you have any. Um, how's the best thing to do this? Um, perhaps, perhaps Kevin, if you take this microphone, I think I'm the least um, the least uh, useful here. So I'll um, I'll go with this, and then you guys can ask. So I have a question, Graham. Yeah. Um, you were talking earlier about influences and stuff. Um, I wanted to know whether you realise yourself how much you have influenced people. Um, case in point, myself. Um, I was a teenager in the late 80s. Uh, I had to rely on video shop window displays to tell me my movie news. Um, and it was posters like Freddy's Revenge um, and Kindred, like I said earlier, um, that attracted me to that. And I still watch those films and collect those films today. So um, your work has influenced my life quite a lot. I didn't know how aware of that you were. Well, it wasn't until um, fairly recently, quite uh, Literally, within the last 10 years, people have been telling me that, um, you know, what, what a difference seeing some of those images I painted at the time had made to their lives. And of course, you don't even plan that at all. They have no idea. I have no idea at all. And only uh, since social media has really um, yeah, become such a, a, a Bigger part of our lives, and suddenly all these people are able to talk about stuff in, in, in a much wider kind of way. Um, people have been telling me this, and you know, I had no idea. Of course, you do stuff in isolation, especially if you're a freelance illustrator, you're working at home, just showing stuff out. It just goes out there, and you have no idea. You, you know, and most of those these things you do were never designed to have any lifespan. You know, the Evil Dead poster was going to be up for two weeks, and then that was it. Film's gone into the next job. And uh, much in the same way that some of the actors, you know, in, in these films, they're employed for a couple of days, do this thing, go to the next job. Never expect anything to have any longevity, but, you know, here we are, you know, sort of all these years, 40 years later, whatever, and it's still just there, you know, in the consciousness. So. And, uh, you know, for me, if, if I um, inspire other artists, then that's the best thing ever. Uh, and I know that I've had Few directors said that um, you know buying uh, uh, VHSs or seeing films on the basis of the posters I've done, it's actually brought them to the point where they're directing films now. Then that's that's absolutely fantastic, you know. In fact, Neil Marshall is one of those people, and um, for him, you know, to get uh, to get a poster that I painted, or again, you know, talking about going full circle, that's kind of really him going back to his youth by actually. Yeah, bringing back the thing that actually inspired him to start with, and I, you know, and I, I do it myself. I, I look for things that inspired me when I was a kid, and um, I, I still keep going back to those same things just to kind of just rekindle, you know, that, that excitement. And uh, yeah, I think it's vital to do that. Though. I mean, I never, I never um, you know, feel that uh, um, yeah, nostalgia is a bad thing. 
Um, also, expect to keep you know, regurgitating the same things. I hope I don't. But uh, um, you know, I think it's very important that you know we remember what excited us as kids and, and gave us the energy to do things. And if that helps, you know, keep the fires going, then absolutely. And uh, yeah, that that for me is what's really kind of quite wonderful. People say that you know they remember the work and it excited them. Like, you know, I had designers, illustrators saying. You know, I was the person that actually got them interested to start with. And of course, I was influenced by other illustrators and artists myself, though. So, in a way, I'm just even myself as part of that process. And, um, you know, with no particular significance, just part of that long kind of thing. And I remember um, I prepared a talk a few years back, and I was looking at, um, I had to try to look back at my work and then see stylistically. Where, where I could trace some of that stuff from. And, you know, I was looking at different artists, and Drew Struzan is one of those people that you know, most people know his work. And it's interesting when you look at his work, who, who he was influenced by himself. And you know, I went back to, um, uh, there's an artist called um, J.C. Decker, who uh, an American artist who kind of probably um, predated very slightly Norman Rockwell. And Norman Rockwell, of course, is one of the benchmark artists for very realistic, illustration and Lane Decker had a more stylized kind of look but they were kind of contemporaries to an extent both working for the same magazines um, but his work is, is it's quite uh, it's got a very specific technique and that's what Drew Struzan was trying to bring to his work and he used him as his template in many ways so it's actually quite nice and then you look at Lane Decker what he was influenced by <coughs> funny enough it was um, people like Jules Sherry and um, and it was a 10th century Parisian stuff. So um, when I was doing the Northern uh, Street, I had no idea what I was doing. It was actually getting right back to the source for some of those artists I was being influenced by. Steve Woolley in a pub one night um, in Soho. They had a little office, Palace Pictures at the time, a little news office. And um, there was a pub called George, was still there in um, uh, Wardour Street, perhaps. Um, and that was the Palace Pictures pub, if you like. They said literally, when they finished the evening, they all piled in there. And I got to go along as well because they were quite good mates. And Steve said, I, I, I've got this um, young writer, director, we're going to make this film for him. Um, it's a low-budget horror film, and um, Richard wants somebody to storyboard it. He would do it himself, but he doesn't have the skills. Uh, would you mind doing it? And I said, well, I've never storyboarded before, so it doesn't matter. He said, uh, literally, 
if you did nothing, that'd be fantastic. And I said, well, I can't, you know, I have to live. So we'll, we'll pay you some money, it'll be fine. So I was introduced to Richard, and it turned out that one of his favorite posters was a uh, um, poster one I painted for Creepers, the uh, UK release of Phenomena, uh, or Gentle Phenomena. Uh, so he got quite excited that uh, I might be involved in this project. And we did get on quite well. Um, and the storyboarding process was quite alarming in many ways because um, he didn't know how to uh, uh, do the storyboard boxes. I didn't know how to do all the director. I didn't know what I was doing. He didn't really know what he was doing either, but somehow we went through and that happened. Uh, so after that, Richard quite enjoyed the process and uh, we found that we could play off each other because I had films that I loved very much that he hadn't seen. And, um, so I, I would suggest ways of doing scenes to him, which you know, seems now completely um, arrogant to uh, tell the director how they should direct their film. But he, he was a very open person anyway, though, and still is. Uh, and so uh, he enjoyed the experience. So when we went to, uh, he, when he made Dust Devil, he came back to me to, for, for the storyboards for that, and ultimately, of course, Underbox Moreau. Um, uh, but I have to say that I don't enjoy storyboarding. Um, it's a lot of work and it's uh, very draining, I find, as well. And um, uh, I did do work with a Spanish director, uh, Alberto Sciarra, I think his name is. So. made a film called The Killer Tongue. Have you seen The Killer Tongue? Yeah. Uh, Poodles and Mummies and um, Gore, a very silly film. But uh, they had a temple Tudor, and that, of course, had Robert England in um, cameo roles and all that. Uh, so I storyboarded most of that for him, and I quite enjoyed that actually because it was such a silly film, and it's just good fun to do. And you know, he paid pocket money for it, um, all my time, and I, I had the time; I wasn't that busy. Then uh, I storyboarded for a couple of other directors, but again, it's just so time-consuming. And um, the last time I was asked, I just said no, can't do it because uh, I've got work on, can can do the, the time it takes. So but I, I, I did enjoy the process because it taught me a lot about the filmmaking process that, that I hadn't really considered before. Though. So it, it gives me an insight now to films and the way directors work. So, for, for instance, uh, doing this poster for Neil Marshall right now, um, I have some idea about his thought processes and it allows me to then consider the imagery I choose for the poster because I know what he's trying to, um, uh, what he's trying to communicate with his images, and I'm trying to second think what he would like me to do on the poster, and so it kind of it has been a, a useful process for me. Um, uh, Richard did talk. Uh, we met about four years ago. He's been trying to make color out of space for a long time, and he did say it was going to happen. And would I be interested in doing some storyboards for him? And I just said um, I'd love to, but I just it, it's not it's not practical for me to do. Uh, so. So yeah, but I, I, I yeah, especially I'd love to work with Richard again. I'm not going to do any more storyboards with him. Especially after the Dr. Moreau um, thing as well. I did so many storyboards of that. I went to, um, I was invited to Los Angeles for three weeks and did storyboarding uh, for him in a hotel there whilst he was um, trying to cast the film there. Then we went to uh, Cairns in Australia for three weeks and did some intensive storyboarding there. Just prior to the uh, beginning of the film, beginning of the shoots. And um, it was, yeah, quite a, it was a, a 
fairly miserable experience. Um, he was under a lot of pressure, and uh, um, I didn't get to see Australia at all, so I was just stuck in a building, just storyboarding all the time there. Um, saw lots of lizards because they kept falling off the ceiling onto my, like, crossing them on the paper. But, uh, um, but yeah, um, yeah, it's hard work, and I don't, uh, yeah. I, I'd rather spend my time doing other stuff. Though. Thanks, everybody. Do we have uh, any more questions? Yes. Are we regularly attending the um, the Fight Festival at Fight Festival? You guys, and I know you do the the poster for festival every year. Can you tell us a bit about that and how you designed the posters? Uh, yeah, um, that happened through uh, a mutual friend, Christopher Fowler, uh, who used to um, uh, run a creative partnership where I still have some desk space now to this day, and I go in there pretty much every day and, and do my own work there, and occasionally do bits and pieces for them as well. So they have a sort of mutual kind of um, understanding. Yeah, but Chris, um, uh, he knew Paul McAvoy from the cinema store. Uh, Paul was running that. Uh, and he's known Alan Jackman since he was adult. They, they've been great friends since I think they were teenagers. So he knew those people anyway. And when they wanted to do their first fight fest, um, they wanted just to, uh, somebody to do the, the basic brochure for them. And uh, so Chris said that uh, I'd probably be happy to do it, which I was. And so that's how it's been ever since then. Um, so it's just it's just because you know people know each other and um, it's, it's kind of very much um, a sort of on a friendship basis. And uh, yeah, I love doing it for them, of course. Um, you know, it's not a well-paid thing this year. I do, but um, it does mean I get a free pass and uh, get to see lots of films. So, <laughs> so yeah, it, it's and uh, they, yeah, the challenge is every year to come up with an image which um, it captures something like that years spirits, if you like, in horror, and, um, and uh, no doubt um, come uh, it's usually around um, just after the, uh, the Glasgow um, uh, thing which is coming up, or just about to happen, is nothing. Is it this weekend or the weekend after? Um, they'll start thinking about uh, August, and so I'll get the phone call and the free lunch, which I get every year, and we'll discuss the poster, and they won't have a clue what they're doing with it, but um, I'll go away and think about it, and then uh, uh, come June, I'll give them an image, and, uh, and that's how it will And of course, each year, you know, we've got the four, four guys there, each year they say it's the last one ever do. Alan's always about to retire, but he yeah, does. Uh, uh, well, Ian has a hard problem and says he should do it anymore, but he does. And uh, yeah, they, they, yeah, they, they keep on going until they drop. We have time for one more if anyone has any, but uh, yeah, okay. Uh, you mentioned doing some uh, mundane kind of, um, I don't know, like day job kind of thing, so I'm wondering if you've got any further, there's a bit of trivia which you've done that's typically not related to any of this, but you're sort of proud of? Or yeah, people are finding bits and pieces, it's really annoying. Uh, somebody <laughs> sent me um, an image the other day, it was uh, some terrible zero cover I did, um, it's like a cartoon. Uh, and it's something called Chalk Dust. I don't know if anybody knows this. It's like a novelty record. And it's basically, uh, um, you know, you cannot be serious. You know, that whole incident in Wimbledon. And, uh, and somebody, you know, there's this absurd moment. Who was, was the tennis player? John, John McEnroe. Thank you very much. So. Yeah, um, uh, somebody thought it was such a silly thing. They started to make a novelty record out of it. And uh, I was in the cover for that, though. Uh, um, I've done stuff with Mother Care, um, 
Parenting magazine seems unwise to sell my hand on that. Yeah, lots of very random odd things. Um, I did something for uh, Saga Holidays once. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, actually, you know, there's stuff, I've done so much stuff, and um, it's just jobs you do to get paid and to get them all. That's it, right? It's all deeply embarrassing. Any more, or is that a good bombshell to uh, the. Yeah, sure. What's the piece of work you're most proud of yourself? Any one piece of work, you have to choose one to. Uh, it's always tough. I get asked this quite a lot, yeah. um, understandably, and uh, um, of course, each year I've done other stuff, and uh, you know, you kind of. <laughs> most of artists don't like what they do. You know, you kind of do stuff, and you, you, all, all you're seeing is the failings within that work, and where you could improve. And um, uh, so, I, I don't like my own work generally. I mean, I, I understand that I've done it to the best of my ability at that moment in time, according to the circumstances and deadlines and everything else. So, but uh, um, I, I do. There are a couple of pieces I do look back on and I think actually that wasn't that bad. And one of those would be Freddy's Revenge, you know, the like close to Freddy and the school bus. Um, that's probably still one of my uh, uh, least embarrassing pieces. Uh, um, but also, you know, I think the um, the the artwork I did for the thing recently, um, I, I feel quite happy with that because um, I know that I, I tried to make it something different to what I've gone before, and it actually. It, to the, the stained glass window thing, um, we have one of here, unfortunately, but uh, um, what I did do, I kind of went back to that idea slightly, though, although rather than recreating stained glass, uh, I decided to turn it into a religious icon. So, um, so the Pure Apostles character is basically Jesus, and the, the flying saucer uh, makes a halo over his head. Uh, and it, it, it's quite clear when you see it, it's, it's a religious icon, basically. So I, I like playing around with, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, Little ideas like this, and I think religion has, you know, uh, uh, it is like music and horror. I think religion and horror go together so well because um, I've always you know, told people that the Bible is the first uh, horror and science fiction anthology uh, on the planet, and um, you know, it remains. I mean, you know, if you if you're in images of horror, you go to the Bible because it's got some really nasty stuff in it. Too. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Well. Um, well, we'll thank everyone for just a second and give you 20 seconds to plug some stuff. Um, so, if you're interested in these kind of conversations, you can visit uh, the website fantasyanimation.org, fantasy-animation.org. Um, the podcast for this will be up when I get around to editing it, editing it so in a couple of weeks. So, if you want to hear yourselves cameo, you're welcome to do so. Um, and we've got episodes uh, featuring um, uh, Andrew Whitehurst, the VFX supervisor of um, uh, Ex Machina, Oscar William. Um, and uh, an episode on Brazil coming up soon with um, filmmaker Hope Dixon and Beach who talks about it. Um, so that's me. You can find us on Twitter, Fanim Research, F A N A N I M Research, as well as on Facebook. Um, Graham has some uh, books to sell if people haven't got their copies yet, and you've got some artwork as well. With uh, yeah, some uh, A3 prints, A2 prints, and um, some fridge magnets. You know, so nice. do come up to the table and ask me. No pressure tools. You've got. Um, um, and you're hanging around for a bit if you, if you want to ask some final questions. But thank you very much for coming, and let's thank Graham um, for his online and his work. Thank you.